I want to talk about being gift givers. And I want to explore, I want to, you see, Christmas is portrayed as a time to give because it's a celebration of the time God gave us Jesus in human form as a gift to us. So I want to celebrate this idea of, I want to explore this idea of gift giving because I realize that for some people, they love Christmas, they love everything about it. Other people are not so up for it for all sorts of various reasons. I also know that Christmas brings all sorts of stresses and worries and anxieties and it's the exact opposite of what Jesus would want it to be, which is a time of hope and fun and laughter and enjoyment and sharing and kindness and all that. And um, I want to particularly think about this idea of, of, of buying gifts for people, which seems to have become a cultural norm and the list of who we're meant to buy for seems to grow ever bigger. And I want to talk about all those feelings that you have in the process of that, of who to buy for and what to buy for, and the whole thing about whether they buy you one or you buy them one, and about spending money and about how much. I want to talk about all that stuff, um, okay, because I want to take some stress off you. And I want, as, I want you to see Christmas as Jesus might see it. And I want you to see it as an opportunity to be the gift giver that you are. But I want you to think about that in a different way. Is that all right? So that's what we're going to do. Uh, well, if it's not all right, you may as well go, because that's what we're going to do. So, <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7. Have we got that there, Josh? It says this. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see also that you excel in this grace of giving. So this is a, a book in the Bible called 2 Corinthians, written by a guy called Paul. So he's writing to a church in a place called Corinth, and he's going, guys, you are doing really well in a lot of this stuff. But just as you're doing really well in faith, in speech, in knowledge, I want you to excel in what he calls this grace of giving. You see, giving is actually a grace that you have been given. It's a gift. You have been given a gift to give. You might not have known it, but you do. It's a grace that's been given to everyone who knows Jesus. And whether you've embraced that gift yet, well, that's a whole other ballgame, but you have been given the grace to be a giver. And that's because when you, when you said yes to Jesus, when you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit, like we were singing, lives in you. And the Holy Spirit has the same characteristics as Jesus, who was the ultimate giver. You only have to read about him to see that. So you have the, the spirit, the heart of the ultimate giver living on the inside of you. And, and, and so Jesus' heart and his being pulsates with the love of God. So everywhere he goes, he's just giving. He's giving life. He's giving healing. He's giving food. He's giving encouragement. Everywhere he goes, he's giving all these good things. And 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9 says that Jesus was rich because the Father had already given everything to him. But then it says that he made himself poor for our sakes because everything God gave him, he gave away. That's what Jesus did. Everything God gave him, he just gave it away so that you could have everything that God had for you. And that wasn't difficult for him in the sense that he already had this love and grace in his heart. It was already there, flowing out of him. All of heaven knew this love that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had. They, they saw it, felt it, lived in it, and enjoyed it. And then Jesus came and displayed this love on the face of the earth. Because God wanted to know that what was in heaven, he wanted you to see on earth. And the, 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 the kind of atmosphere of heaven is just one of giving all the time. Which is why Jesus gave all the time of himself. So that spirit, that grace of giving that was in Jesus lives in you and me. And what's fascinating is that when you read the Bible, you find that it does you good to operate in that grace. 
We often think it's about other people, but actually the Bible says it does you good when you embrace this grace giving that's on the inside of you. So the next couple of verses says this in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 10 to 12. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage, not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you must also complete the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if first there is a will in mind, it is accepted according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So first of all, Paul says, look, it's actually to your advantage. Now, which is strange because we often think that it's going to cost us. We often think that if we give, whatever that might be, give of ourselves or give of our finance or give of our resources or give of our energy or whatever it might be, and, and I'm not just thinking big, I'm thinking giving the sense of I'm going to buy somebody some flowers. I'm going to text them and see how they are. I'm going to ring them up. That, that's a giving of yourself. We often think, well, that's going to cost me something. But Paul says, no, no, no. No, it's to your advantage. And we'll get round to why in a bit. And then he says, to be doing what you began and were desiring to do. You see, the truth is this grace, this desire to give, it rises up in you a lot. But most of us shut it down. We have beautiful thoughts about other people, about our friends, about family, even about strangers that we want to do. But sometimes we shut it down. It happened to me, just, we were in Kathmandu in this hotel, and it's a very, like, there's a lobby and there's a few tables, and this is like the dining table, and me and Matt are sat there. And this girl comes down, and um, she kind of says, can, can I sit with you? And we're like, yeah, sure. So she, where was she from? Austria. She was from Austria, and she was gonna, she'd brought a mountain bike across, and she was gonna go trekking in the Himalayas on a mountain bike. Like, wow, that's pretty amazing. And then at the end, I thought, it'd be really nice to buy a dinner. Because she ate with us in the end, because there was nobody else there, and she obviously wanted to feel a bit safer. She'd, she'd walked from, like, we'd taken a cab for a few minutes in a taxi. She'd walked, like, from the station in the dark down this hotel. She's like 20 odd. I'm like, I felt for her. I'm like, of course you can see this. And I had this thought, maybe we should just add a bill on our bill. It was like a few quid. And then I thought, I wonder what she'll think about that. Would that be helpful? But I shut it down out of fear. And then Matt went, let's pay for your bill. And I was like, oh, that's good. So anyway, well done, Matt. You rescued me there. But, but we shut it down all the time, don't we? For all sorts of reasons that are nonsense, really. They're just rubbish. But this grace, it rises in you all the time. Thoughts to bless people, to sow into something, to do something. But we, we manage to shut it down often. We're often really good starters, but we're not often... Very good completers. And maybe it's because we do not have a willing mind. You see, it says the first requirement to excel in this grace of giving is a willing mind. A willing, a willing mind makes way for acceptance. It allows success. A willing mind that can be taught, that can be shaped, that can be formed and transformed. That's where the battle's won. I spent a whole two hours talking about that in, in Nepal. But he says, now you must also complete the doing of it. You realise, God... God always completes everything. If God said something, he's going to complete it. If he's promised you, it's going to happen. It might not happen when you want it to happen, how you want it to happen, and with the people you thought it might happen with, but it will happen. A lot of the time we get so caught up in the practicalities, we think God's not in it, but it's just he never said how he'd do it, or when he'd do it, or who he'd do it with. He just said he'd do it. So trust him that he's going to do it. We often start off really well, have all these intentions, and then, then often it gets difficult we start something new it becomes challenging what's interesting is that oftentimes we give up at precisely the wrong moment because your greatest mountain will always precede your greatest miracle 
your greatest mountain will always precede your greatest miracle. So sometimes when we set out on a path, the situation seems to get worse, things seem to get tighter before a breakthrough comes. But he says there may be completion out of what you have. Paul doesn't notice it's out of what you have, not out of what you don't have. God doesn't ask you to do anything out of what you do not have. The question though is what do you have? You see, perhaps what you think you have and what he thinks you have are two different things. Because we look and go, well, we haven't got much. Have you looked in your wardrobe lately? Have you looked in your fridges and your cupboards? Have you walked around your house? We don't have much. No, no, no. Right. Who are you comparing it to? Instead of comparing it to the guy down the road with a bigger house and the bigger car and the bigger all the rest, bigger bank accounts, why don't you just compare it to zero? Why you compare a blank sheet of paper and then tell me you don't have much? No, we have much. We have much. We are incredibly blessed. That's why faith and seeing as God sees is so important. We, we, we don't have much. But if I ask you to make an inventory of everything you possess in your heart, every gift, every talent, every ability, and every external possession, you would be there a very long time. You have much. But let's get back to this idea that, that it might be to your advantage. Because... Why, why would it be to your advantage to do that? Well, because every time you give, you release the Holy Spirit, the giver on the inside of you. And the only way to deal with selfishness, greed, and poverty thinking on the inside of you is to give. That's how you deal with it. When you look and say you've not got anything, the way to realize you've got something is to give it away. When you realize that you, you're thinking always about the cost all, and, and, and this idea that that the lack is kind of there, always in your mind. The way to deal with it is to just do the exact opposite. That's called faith. Next slide. So excelling in this grace of giving is not just about who you give to. It gives great advantage to you. And of course, just think about it. The selfishness, the greed, the thought about the cost all the time. Do they bring you life? Is it fun living with those thoughts? Does it do you well? No. So why do you want to keep them then? You see, living a life of sowing and giving benefits not just those who receive it, but it actually benefits you. Which makes sense because as you journey with him and as you trust him, as you become more intimately acquainted with him, you'll see more and more of how much he's given you and you'll desire to flow in that grace that you've been given. You'll come to see that sending a card, sending a text, going to life group even though you're tired, turning up on a Sunday morning even though it's been a tough week, Buying someone some flowers, making an extra financial offering, giving somebody a lift, giving away your savings, opening up your home to people, going above and beyond what you have previously given is not really giving at all. It's just a normal Jesus life. You see, our problem is we've mistaken normal for lack. Normal is lack. Normal is just getting by. Normal is just looking after my immediate family. That's not normal in a kingdom. That's abnormal. But we've gone, that's normal. No. It's not normal. Jesus wouldn't say that were normal. When do you see Jesus in lack? When do you see him just looking after his immediate family? When do you see him saying he didn't have enough? When he's faced with 5,000 men plus women and children and only five loaves of bread and two fish, he goes, thank you, Father, for what I've got. And suddenly everybody's fed. When do you see him only looking after his immediate family? In fact, when asked about his immediate family, he goes, who are my brothers and sisters? those who do the will of God. 
Abundance, giving as a way of life is what is a normal Jesus-centered life. That's a normal life. But of course it's a huge challenge and this is why. Have we got that next? This is why. We live in a transactional world, but we worship a non-transactional God. Let me expand what I mean by that a little bit. So our whole economic system is built on the idea of winners and losers, of equilibrium, exchange, equivalence. When interest rates go up, you read this story, these people win. People who've got savings win. People who've got mortgages lose. There's got to be winners, there's got to be losers. When the budget comes out, some people have won because they're better off and some people have lost because they're worse off because there's got to be a balance, there's got to be an equilibrium. There's talk of, of a need to balance the books because it's all built on ins and outs and credits and debits. And you know that because in your own bank account, you know if you have more going out than going in, that means there's a problem. And so you strive to have more coming in than going out, or at least try and balance it. So you live in this system all the time of credits and debits, of balancing everything. Next slide. Our problem is that God does not have these problems, and yet our thinking is rooted in this way. Our thinking is rooted in lack and fear of lack. It's rooted in balancing the books, and not just financially. Because that idea of balancing the books, of having the ins and the outs and making it all balanced, that feeds into our relationships. So our whole lives are often based on transaction and balance. We don't think about it because it's so ingrained within us. So we share the jobs out at home equally. And if for some reason we do a job that's not ours, we expect somebody else will do that job because we expect equivalents. So if I normally do the washing up, but somebody else does it for me, well, maybe I should do their job now because we live in this transaction world of equivalence. If we arrange to take somebody else's kids somewhere at school, we expect that at some point they will take our kids to school because they've done it for us, so we do it for them. If we look after somebody when they're ill, we expect they will look after us when we're ill because, hey, I looked after you when you were ill. Where were you when I was ill? What's that? It's transaction. It's debits, it's credits, it's equivalence. But God doesn't understand that. God doesn't know that. If we go out and buy the coffees for our work team morning, we assume it must be somebody else's turn tomorrow because I did it today. Do we not? It's so ingrained in our culture. Reaching out, going beyond caring, but always in the back of our mind that we're going to get something back. We're going to get a return on our investment. What if we could live in a different way? What if we could... Avoid the stress and the anxiety when the favours don't get returned and the going beyond doesn't happen for you. Because what happens is people live like that and then they don't perceive to be the favours to be returned and then you stop giving. Because you go, I'm not, I bought, I bought those coffees all week and him over there, he's such a skinflint, he never bothers, I'm not buying one now. Don't we think like that even if we don't act on it? Because we think transaction. We think equivalence. What if we could live in such a way that your giving wasn't connected with the anxiety of what you'll receive? What if we could live in such a way that all you're giving out, you could take away all that transactional stuff and just give and not be worried about who or where or when might give you it back because you've no longer got a record of who you've given to and you're going to mark it off when they give you it back. Because that's what God does all the time. That is what Jesus does. There's a whole parable about it where effectively there's a ledger and it all works out and then Jesus just effectively throws the book away. He goes, I don't live in an account system. I don't live with credits and debit. Credits? I don't know what credits are. Credits and debits and ledgers. Romans 13, verse 8 to 10. 
or no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall commit adultery, shall murder, not steal, not bear false witness, not cover. If there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour, therefore love is a fulfilment of the law. Next slide. Just briefly, love is the fulfilment of the law because if you love somebody, you're not going to cover them. If you love somebody, you're not going to run off with the husband or the wife. If you love somebody, you're not going to murder somebody. So love is the fulfilment of the law. So loving other people is the outward manifestation, the visible expression, the practical demonstration, and therefore why you don't need all of it of the law. Because it fills it all up. Okay, next slide, Romans 13, 8. So, he says that we should owe no one anything. And I think it's safe to conclude that Paul is contrasting a position of owing people to a position of loving people. The word uh, to owe one another is not to love one another. And to love one another is not to owe one another. Okay, next one, Josh. Sorry, I skipped one. This word owe is the word afilo. It means to owe money, yes, but it also means to be under obligation, to be bound, and to be indebted. So, when he's talking about owing people, it's not owing money, it's about, am I under an obligation? Do I feel like I owe something to somebody? He's talking about how we interact with each other and how we think about with one another. And yet, how many of us live our lives in exactly that place? A sense of indebtedness, a sense we can't actually do what we want to do. In describing the word aphelo, Strong's Dictionary uses the words ought, could, and must, should and must rather. Now, how many of us are in that place? A sense of indebtedness to other people that control us. We ought, we should, we must. Not out of a love for the person, just because we feel like we're somehow under this thing that I, I, I must do this, I should do this, I ought to do this. Not because I love them and I want to, but because I've, I've kind of got to. I owe them somehow in some way. In certain situations or with certain people or at certain times of the year, some of us are like puppets on a string being controlled by somebody else that we've given authority to. We feel we cannot do the things we would like to do because of those constraints. We live as though we owe people when the word of God says we should owe no one anything except to love them. Now, the issue as ever with the word of God is not about the action, it's about the heart. You see, when it comes to serving Jesus, lots of us want a nice list of how to do. But actually the Bible gives you a list of how to be. And we often think that, that what's important is doing the right thing, but the truth is having the right heart is the most important thing. Are you doing it out of a love for them or because you feel you ought, should, must? You see, Jesus would rather you have the right heart and the wrong action than the right action and the wrong heart. You see that from the Pharisees. They're, they, they're the actions are right, but the heart was all wrong and he hammered them. You see, those, those words, ought, should, must, they don't describe a kingdom heart. Jesus never did anything because he thought he ought to, or because he thought he should. He did it. His heart went out to these people and went, I love them, I'm going to do this. A kingdom heart is not moved by ought, should, must. A kingdom heart is ruled by love, never a sense of indebtedness. Because anything that drives you to do something from an ought, should, must place doesn't come from the heart of the Father. 
Because there's nothing in a kingdom heart which should be under obligation because the king of the kingdom obligates you to nothing. He obligates you to nothing. He makes no demands in the sense that you are completely free to respond to him as you choose because he's all about love. Which means if you want to be like the father, we have to make sure we don't obligate others. We don't manipulate others so they feel they are, should, must. Towards the Father, we are under no obligation whatsoever. We are free to respond entirely as we choose because within the heart of the Father, there's no manipulation, there's no control, there's nothing in him that wants to coerce you, nothing in him that could make you feel those are, should, must thoughts. Which brings us back to Christmas and gifts. How many of you have felt a sense of awe, should, must when you think about Christmas? Well, I, I ought to buy a presence for them. I should invite them round. I've got to do this. Whether that be who to buy for, how much to spend, where to go, who to invite round, it can be fraught with those tensions. There's an article in the Guardian about a book called The Gift. A man called Marcel Mauss in 1925 wrote a book called The Gift. 200-page book, the French anthropologist, describes archaic societies in Melanesia, Polynesia, and the northwest coast Native Americans. And they practice a thing called potlatch, which is a ceremonial gift-giving and feasting ritual characterized by competitive shows of giving. This is ages ago. So he wrote this in 1925, and he said that competitive shows of giving are still around. But what was fascinating was that the author of the, uh, the journalist who wrote the article, Mary Anacotcha, says this. Have we got that up there? There we go. This is fascinating. She believed this. Ultimately, gift-giving is a means of affirming and strengthening the moral bonds between us. It's strategic, competitive, and non-voluntary. But still, it binds us close and reminds us we're not in this game alone. But if they're neither voluntary nor disinterested, are they really gifts at all? Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible and I read about Jesus, the words strategic, competitive, and non-voluntary don't really come to mind. But think about Christmas. Think about how many times it's strategic. What do we mean by that? Well, it's about keeping people happy. It's about making sure relationships don't get broken. It's about keeping things together. It's about using it as an apology. Is it competitive? Well, we want to make sure that our gift is at least equal to the person that gave us a gift. We want to make sure it's better than last year. We want to make sure this, is it competitive? Non-voluntary? Well, non-voluntary -vol means you've got a complete choice over it. Non-voluntary means you feel you don't. And before you say, no, 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 my Christmas is not strategic, competitive, or non-voluntary, ask then, it will be completely fine for you to not buy a single present for a single person, would it? other than the fact that you are motivated purely by love. And I'm not sure any of us are quite there just yet. A couple of thoughts then on gift giving at Christmas. Firstly, do we need to even buy each other a gift at all? Secondly, do we need to spend a lot of money on that gift? Money that some of us don't actually have in the first place. I mean, the amount of credit card debt spent on Christmas is scary, and there will be a spike in calls to cap in January when the bills come through. What is that all about? What do the vast majority of us in this room actually need? Do you have a roof over your head? Do you have food in the fridge? 
Do you have a choice of clothes to wear? Do most of us actually need anything? Do we need to give each other small little gifts? Now, we might like to, we might want to, and I'm going to get on to that in a minute, but I'm just, let's first of all ask this question, do we need to do that? When there are people who actually have some real needs outside? Perhaps if we want to show love this Christmas, assuming your gift, that's why you're giving the gift, to show love, we could look a little wider than our normal gift list because there's plenty of need right outside our door. There are people this Christmas who might be on, the, on, the, on their own. Maybe the gift of a family to celebrate with for just a few hours would be a beautiful gift. And don't, don't, you know, sometimes we, we focus so much on Christmas Day. Well, there's Christmas Eve and then there's Boxing Day. And, you know, there's like a whole week of it. Maybe somebody might want a gift of a family to celebrate with. There are people this Christmas who don't have enough money for a Christmas meal. Could you purchase some items to go in a Christmas food pass? So one of the things we've uh, done, and you're going to get this as you, as you go out, is um, we wanted as a leadership team to make sure we were thinking outside of ourselves one way or another this Christmas. So we've been in touch with um, uh, Angela, who works at the Emmanuel Project, which serves the homeless and vulnerable in our city. You can collect everyday foods. You can do that all year. But at Christmas, they want some specific items. Our Bradford North Food Bank, which I am actually going, actually, I'm going with Kaz this week to Bradford North Food Bank to be able to give out vouchers for that so that when we know people, we can actually direct them there. They want some specific things like a Christmas cake, mince pies, a box of chocolates. What, what about instead of giving each other five pound gifts because we feel we should, what about instead going and giving somebody Sunday so they can actually have a mince pie on Christmas Day? Because otherwise they wouldn't have one. And you've sat, jumped through seven. What about thinking a bit wider? And I'm not asking you to spend more money. I'm asking you to think about what you, what you do spend and where it goes. I'm not even asking you to spend more. I'm asking you to think about how am I going to use... Remember, it's not out of what you don't have. It's out of what you do have. But out of what you do have, how could we direct it in a different way? Instead of suggesting a secret Santa at work this year and everyone buying everybody else five pounds of things they don't really need, why don't you all give that five pounds to a local charity? Why do we do things like Secret Santas for five quid? Now, I know some people really enjoy giving, but some people don't. Why are we forcing people to buy things? They don't enjoy buying gifts. They don't enjoy receiving gifts. I'll get to that in a moment. But we force them to do it and spend money on it. That's ridiculous. A part of our family, they, um, the adults don't buy for each other. But every year, they all give money, and they buy a family in Africa a goat. And that goat will feed that family milk for a year. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? That's a beautiful thing. There are kids all over the world who won't receive anything. We've got the, the Operation Christmas Child boxes. We're deliberately doing one in Sunday school and in the youth group because we wanted to teach our kids to think outside of themselves. There's Robert and Cynthia. They want to start to disciple young people in Paraguay. They need two and a half grand to start that charity. So far, they've got 250 quid. They want to go in the whole of Paraguay teaching kids about Jesus. And in all of this, again, I'm not asking you to sell more than you might have done. I'm asking you to think about the best way to operate in that grace of giving that you've got this Christmas time. But secondly, if we are going to get people gifts as an expression of our love, assuming that's why it's bought and not because you ought should must, then I don't understand why we limit how we show love at Christmas. Because we show love to people. There are five love languages, five ways people receive love. And at Christmas, we all give people a physical gift. What is that all about? Hang on a minute. Some people love receiving gifts. Some people love some words. 
Some people love some time. Some people love some practical jobs. Some people love some physical affection. Why then do we buy everybody something we wrap up in a box? When only 20% of people is their primary love language. That's bonkers, isn't it? Why do we do that? It's incredibly strange to me. So if we're going to give gifts let, to show love to one another, let's at least think about the best way to express love to them. Let's not be so lazy as to just think a physical object we can get from Amazon in five minutes is the answer. That's not love. That's just culture. Because I've got to. Well, I ain't going to walk should must anymore. If we're going to get somebody a gift, let's think a bit wider. If someone appreciates time with you, then give them a gift. Take the, you know what you could do? You could say, look, I'm going to take a day of my annual leave and I'm going to give it to you. That would be a powerful gift, wouldn't it? If somebody enjoys time with you. If someone likes words, write them a letter expressing what they mean to you, how important they are to you, and how they've blessed you and encouraged you. I think that was it. I think it might have been last year. I, I didn't give any of the leadership team a gift, but I wrote, was it last year I wrote to you or two years ago? I, I wrote to them all, which took a lot more time than just going and buying them a, back a bunch of chocolates or some potpourri or something. Yeah. <laughs> it took a lot more time and effort, but you know what? It expressed my heart. And of course, I, I love words, so for me, I find it easier, right? If someone likes a practical gift, they like practical, offer to do something every week, every month, or as a one-off gift, let's be a bit more creative about it. And we do some daft stuff, you know, like we set our budget and then we say it equally. But hang on a minute. If one person loves a physical gift and one person doesn't, why are we going to, why do that? Like we might go, well, we're going to spend 20 pounds on each other, whatever it might be. Yeah, but if you don't like receiving a gift and you'd rather have something different, well, spend 40 pounds on the person who wants a gift and spend some time and energy on this person who doesn't. That's ridiculous to do it equal. I used to do it with my kids. We spend the why am I going to spend the exact amount of money on my kids? Chase around trying to find something for three quid just so they've had the same amount of money spent on them. <laughs> what the chuff is all about? Nonsense. It ain't nonsense. Just so you can feel like you've got equality. Well, but they all want different things at different times. It gets more expensive as they get older, don't it? <laughs> but we've got to think about these things a bit. And you know me, I'm always, I'm always trying to think underneath what we do. That's, I love taking apart what we do and putting it back together. In, but, but I do it because I'm so aware of the pressure and stress we put on ourselves. But it's meant to be a celebration of a gift we've received called Jesus. who came to show us how to love one another and he gave himself. So what does it mean for you to give yourself this Christmas? What does it mean that you express that love in a real way? And I, and I say it to you because I realise it's not easy... It's not easy to stand up, for example, in your family and be the one who goes, actually, we're going to do this this Christmas. If the, if the expectation is there, because you get called a skin flint. You get, people think you're being tight. People think you don't love them. But actually, you're doing the exact opposite. You go, no, I want to love you in a proper way. And listen, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not saying don't. For some people, I know, Faye loves gifts. I would never not buy her an actual physical object because she loves it. She loves opening it. She loves receiving it. And actually, one of the greatest joys for me at Christmas is giving gifts. It's going and thinking about it, buying it, and then watching people enjoy it. That's what gives me the most joy. Because that's just how I'm built. And that don't mean, because that don't mean I'm any better than anybody else. If you enjoy receiving them, you enjoy receiving I just don't particularly enjoy receiving a physical gift. My best gifts are things that Faye's written to me that I've still got on my bedside table. Memory books with pictures in it are. 
a letter that's like four or five, it's the longest letter she's ever written in her life. Like, and she felt like, I'm giving you this, I'm going, that's the best present I've ever had. Why? Because I love words. I'm not too fussed about unwrapping something. I mean, it's all right, you know, but if you ask me what I want, I'll go, oh, I've got some books on my Amazon wish list. And I'll enjoy them, but, but actually, there's different ways we love, different ways we receive. Take some time to find out. Take some time to think about it. Show that you love them by taking the time to go, how can I best, if, if it's meant to be about expressing love, well, let's work out what that means for those people that are around us. And not be so lazy as to just go on Amazon and find something that you can click on that you can get pre-gift wrapped. Let's not fall into the trap of following our culture. Let's look to Jesus, the ultimate gift giver, and embrace the grace of giving on the inside of you. It's already there. You've just got to flow with it. So I'm going to... So these are just different ways that you might want to think about. Just all the details are there. Please, these are specific things that these charities have asked for. Please don't think, oh, I know I'll buy on that. There'll be a reason why... For example, ladies roll on deodorant, not aerosol, is really important. I have no idea why, but for some reason, obviously, maybe it's nice for ladies who can't really afford deodorant to feel like they smell nice for a little bit of the week. Maybe that's really important in their own self-esteem and value. I have no idea. So that's the techum. And listen, feel free to go to your friends. I'm not going to buy you a gift this time. I'm going to do this. And if somebody does, don't be upset. You can just blame it on me, all right? It's all my fault. It's fine. I don't care. If it, if it eases the tension, just blame me. I really am not bothered, all right? You can't blame me. <laughs> Shall we pray? Father, we want to thank you that you put the grace of giving on the inside of us. You showed us what it meant to actually give of ourselves, Father. And Lord, we want to enjoy this period leading up to this thing called Christmas, Lord, which has become such a commercialised piece of nonsense. Father, we want to celebrate gifts and you coming as a gift and us being able to express gifts to one another. We want to express love to one another. We want to tell people that we love them, that we care about them in a proper, real way. So we are asking, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that you would help us, Father. Help us, Lord. It may well be right that we buy somebody a physical gift and give them it. That may be the best way, Father. But, Lord, I'm asking that you would open our eyes to all the other different ways that we might love those around us, Father, that we might open our lives and our homes and our resources to everybody around us. And I want to thank you, Father, that it comes about uh, that you don't expect us to do anything out of what we don't have, Lord. It's all from what we do have, Father, what we already possess, Father. Thank you, Lord, that we have sufficient to show love already in Jesus' name. Amen.